you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. Uh, I've got apologies to you, got a little bit of a runny nose, so if I blow my nose up here or, or pop a uh, cough drop in my mouth, don't follow any speaking etiquette, please roll with it and just call it good. Uh, we'll see what we can do. Um, we're, we're continuing through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've still got a ways to go if you have not looked ahead and seen what we're coming to. But we've been breaking it up in different series and different sections of 1 Corinthians where he's talking through different themes. And the theme right now is first comes love, then comes, it, it's the question that's after that. Uh, we, we've all heard that adage, that adage for, before as kids and stuff like that. You know, when you have a couple that you think's together, you know, Eric and Emily sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes love, then comes, well, that's what we assume, right? Everything should follow a track group. Then comes a baby in a baby carriage, and it just keeps going like that. The reality is sometimes what happens for us that don't fit that mold? What, what about the people who are single? What about the people who are widowed? What about the people whose marriages are falling apart? How, how do we process some of the stuff? Does Scripture have anything to say about the stuff? And Paul in these sections addresses things specifically to the church of Corinth that they have asked in addressing what's going on with them. So, so understand this, when we read the letter to the church of Corinth, we have to read it as a letter written to them, addressing issues to them, and pulling out principles that apply to us. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean the truth of what Paul says to them is any less applicable to us, but we have to filter through. It was not written necessarily to you and me. I know you always told that the Bible was written to you in loose terms. It was written to you, but it was written to someone else first for a purpose, a specific context. And through history, we said this is authoritative, this is good, and it's applicable to us as well, if you will. Um, and so we're going to continue on that topic and some of you guys survived on slide last week talking about the marriage bed, and uh, thank you for surviving all that. I think the count was over 50 if you're questioning how many times we, we discussed that topic and stuff. Uh, but this week we're moving away from that, um, and I'm actually stealing an illustration to kick off from a, a well-known speaker from Watermark Church called Timothy Atik, or T.A. If any of you guys, I think where he spoke at the If Gathering, if I remember right, uh, or I was told. Uh, and, and I love his illustration that kind of kicks off this, this for what we're talking about today. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but every single guy in, in their deepest hearts, hearts of hearts, they have some sort of spiritual gifting where we are deep down, we're pyros. We like fire, don't we? Anytime there's a fire, it, it is like a moth to a light. We're attracted, we want to gather around, we want to see it. I, I kid you not, most guys, if they're not hurting on time, if they see smoke in the sky driving down, they will go out of their way to figure out what's on fire so they can gawk and come and see it. You know it's true. You do. You want to see what's on fire. And when it's just like a little field fire or something, there's a little disappointment. You want to see something good. You know what I mean? Every one of us love fires. And even more so, if you ever sit around with a group of guys at a campfire, all guys fall in one of three categories of how they approach a campfire. You see, for example, there's some guys that will get a chair, sit down, plop themselves in the chair, and sit back and enjoy the fire. They will not move. They will sit there and enjoy the fire. And then once it goes out, they'll get up, pack their chair, and move on. You know what I'm talking about. They're just there to enjoy the warmth, the ambiance, and the look of the fire. You got a second set of guys that, that they, they they're the guys that like to sit by the fire, but they like to hold the can of lighter fluid. You know what I'm talking about? I would say almost 90% of guys fall in this category right here. We like to watch stuff burn. And so we'll sit there and watch it and they'll say, Oh, the fire's going out, I got it, and just and flames will jump up, and what will happen? It'll go right back down. 
And when that goes out, what do you do? You start grabbing paper goods and whatever you can find around you, leaves to make big fires and stuff. They, they throw it out. The reality is they'll do that. The fires don't ever actually get any better. They, there's this huge combustion for a short moment, but eventually it goes right back out, right? But there, there's a third group of guys when it comes to campfires. Those, those are the guys who feel that it's their responsibility to maintain the fire the entire night. You know what I'm talking about. Every campfire has one, I promise you. Every year we go with my guys, we go riding four-wheelers, we'll start a fire and do this, and all three guys exist in this, in this group. And these guys, the third guy that feels their responsibility, will never sit down. They constantly are standing around watching the fire. They generally have a poker. If they did not have a poker, they have made their own poker out of a stick they found to get the fire going. And they'll watch the fire, and they'll stir it up and get it going. And when the fire just slightly starts going out, they'll grab it along. They will never let that fire go down. They make sure it's a steady burn. It doesn't ever get too big. It never gets too small. It stays steady and consistent. And most of the time, those guys don't ever really get to enjoy the fire. They're constantly maintaining the fire. Ladies, can I get an amen from someone in the room? Is that not true right there? Do you not see that right there in all the guys? And, and ladies, I know because my wife says all to me all the time is, I don't get what your infatuation with fire is. I, I'm like, listen, the Lord placed it in my heart. I can't control it. I love to watch stuff burn. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Um, I tell you that because when it comes to marriage, those three approaches apply to what we see how people approach marriage. There, there are people who their approach to marriage is they will start a fire, they will sit in a chair, and they'll sit there, and then once it goes out, they'll pack up and go. They're just there to enjoy it as long as it lasts. They're not really looking to pour any more into it. They're really not looking to put any energy into it. They're just there to enjoy it. And once it goes out, it's gone. They'll pack their chair up, and they'll move on. Don't, don't believe me. There's a term coined today of starter marriages. Have uh, you ever heard of starter homes? It's a home that you say, you know, this is not meant to be my forever home. It's meant to be a home to start with, and eventually I'll move on to the actual house I plan to live in the rest of my life. People have coined a phrase of starter marriages. They, they will start marriage in this, and they will work through all the kinks, all the new, learn about it, but they don't expect this marriage to last. They expect to eventually move on to a different one. You get people who in marriages fall in that second category where they, they sit there and their flames, they, they're high or low, and there's no in-between. There's not a steady consistency when it comes to marriage. And when things start going bad and the flames start going out, what do they do? They do all they can. They start pouring gasoline and fluid trying to get it going, and they love seeing the big burn. Thing, things are good again, and the moment they sit down to relax, what happens? It goes back down, and they find themselves exhausted, never really finding that place. But, but there's people that we hope we all get to that are constantly realizing that our role is to constantly be working on our marriage, to, to constantly be maintaining. It's not about letting the flame get too big or too small. We're always working at it. We're always working at it. I tell you this because Paul today addresses marriage. That's what he's talking about. He talks about us needing to guard our marriage and be careful with our marriage. I'm just curious, and I know some of you will hate me for this, but I think it's so uh, important to see. I'm just curious, if you would do me a favor, uh, if you have been married for 20 years or more, if you're able, would you do me a favor and stand up? Wow, is that not amazing right there? Yes. All right, stay standing. Please stay standing, yes. All right, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to find out who's been married the longest, so get ready for this. Y'all ready? If you've been married for 25 years or more, stay standing. 
30 years or more stay standing. 35 years or more stay standing. I'm seeing just certain classrooms standing up. 40 years or more stay, stay standing. 45 years or more stay standing. 50 years or more stay standing. Amen. How long, how long, how long have y'all been married? 54 years. What did you say? Please don't say you said too long. What'd you say? How many? 60. Wow, would you guys give a round of applause? Man, that is, that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right, real quick on the other end of the spectrum. If you have been married for five years or less, would you do me a favor and please stand up? Yeah. Four years or less. Three years or less. Two years or less. A year and a half or less. <laughs> how long? I know y'all I did y'all's wedding. How, how long y'all been married now? Five months, man. How awesome is that? Would you round applause that? You guys can have a seat. Here's the thing, listen, I'm not trying to embarrass people. I'm trying to get to the point is this, is how, how do we get people from this to do that? How, how do we be a church known of people who say, you know what, we, we're here for the long haul. We're here to endure. Like if I were to ask you right now, what is your purpose of marriage? What do you think is the purpose of marriage I'd be curious what the answers would be from the five and under to those who had married for 60, 55 plus years. But what would you answer? Think about that for a second. So, some of us might say happiness. Some of us might say companionship. Some of us might say love. Some might say family. And, and listen, those are all great aspects of marriage that God wants us to enjoy inside marriage, but it's not the purpose of marriage. The biblical purpose of marriage has a deep meaning, deeper meaning. This is why God calls us to the covenant of marriage. As a matter of fact, Timothy Atik, who, who I just quoted, he, he says this when it comes to marriage. He said, God created marriage to show himself to the world. That's his purpose. That's what marriage does. It, it displays God. Mar- marriage exists to show Christ's love for his bride, which is the church, us, the people of God. So that's what marriage gets to do. It exists to display the glory of God to an unbelieving world. Just so we're on the same page, the ultimate purpose of your marriage is not your happiness. The ultimate purpose of your marriage uh, is, is not companionship. It's not so someone to do life with so you're not lonely. That, that's not the ultimate purpose of marriage. The ultimate purpose of marriage is not for young Christians and women to be able to have sex without guilt. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the glory of God on display to the rest of the world. And the greatest cultivators are the ones who are maintaining the fire, as so to speak, operate with the greatest clarity on their ultimate purpose. In other words, listen, marriage points to God's unbreakable covenant with us and points to the unity we have God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a gospel presentation through the lives of husbands and wives. And God, that's why in Genesis 1 and 2, he established marriage to show people, hey, listen, when people see this, they see me. 
It's the same thing as fathers, why it's important that we do a great job with our kids raising them. Because when God talks about himself as the father, if you've had a horrible father experience, it does not portray God well. But when we do a good job of it, what does it do for God? And so it's so important that we understand our marriage is meant to glorify God, point people to God, to show the gospel truth. And now, let me just talk about this. Like, when we think about that, what, what does divorce say to God's witness then? Just think of in our statistics today, in our world, listen to this. Every 42 seconds, there is one divorce in America. Every 42 seconds. Add up how many have been in the last 12 minutes and 30 seconds I've been through so far. R- roughly 50% of all marriages will end in divorce or separation, 60% of all second marriages, and 75% of all third marriages. The median duration of first marriages lasts approximately 7.8 years. In less than 20 years, the number of never married Americans have rise from 21% to 35%. That is a 14% increase of people saying, listen, I, I'm, just, I'm just not going to get married. We'll just live and cohabitate and pretend like we're married, but I'm not going to sign that contract. I'm not going to do that right there. Now, now, real quick, listen. I am not today trying to heap guilt on the divorced. That, that is not my goal and intention. Because I understand this, statistically speaking, at least 50% in this room have been divorced, and 100% of you have been affected by it, because we all know someone we love and care for have been through that. I am a product of a divorced home, of a, of a blended family. And by the grace of God, I'm grateful for it. I was just talking to my wife the other day. She says, listen, if God had said, man, I can't imagine where I'd be today. That doesn't mean God approves of what happened. God has used what happened to glorify his name still and accomplish what he has. And I'm going to even in confession say this. In my marriage of 17 years with my wife, I have come to places and points in my life where I have contemplated divorce that I never thought would creep into my mind. And so I'm saying this is we need to have a conversation. The goal today is not to attack, condemn, belittle, or ostracize, but listen, it's here to redeem. It's to restore, and possibly for some of you to save. A marriage that's on the fritz. The big idea I want you to see when Paul talks about today is this. In a world that is giving up on marriage, believers have to show marriages that endure. It's our calling. When people look at our marriage and say, how is yours working? Guess what it does? It allows us to point back to God and say, this is why. And I don't know what walk of life you've been in or where you're at right now. Listen, I, again, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm trying to help us to get on the same page. Let's, let, let's, let's work towards something together. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 through 16. Paul says this. Now remember last week he goes off talking about the marriage bed and how important it is that we, we stay healthy in that area, if you will, for lack of better terms. But verse 6, he goes on. He says this. He says, I say as a concession, not as a command. I, I wish that all the people were as I am, talking about being single. He says, but each has his own gift from God. One person that has a gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried, to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. To, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with them, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. 
For an unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let's talk about what Paul is addressing here when it talks about the views of marriage. He starts talking to the singles and the widows, if you will. And his first point, I think he's trying to get along across is this, is that not everyone is meant to get married. Not everyone is meant to get married. Understand culturally what's going on here. But Paul's talking to widows specifically and also single people in a congregation who are feeling pressured to get married. Now, now, when he talks about widows, he's not implying older people necessarily in here. Some are, some are not. In this time in culture, whenever uh, um, when mortality rates were so low, it would not be uncommon to have teenage widows with them. And so they're in a situation where, like, what do we do? Should we get remarried? Are we allowed to? Is it wrong? What, what's going on here? Even Roman law pressured them to remarry. Like Augustine Law says, if they don't remarry in so much time, they would lose out on inheritance and stuff. A widow was expected to remarry within a year, and a divorcee within six months. They pressure them to marry, and they're constantly dealing with this. But Paul's ultimately letting them know, like, hey, listen, there's nothing wrong with being single. And if you're walking around feeling the pressure, like people are like, there's something wrong with you. You need to get married. There's a, there's a bad omen being placed on this. We too often, even in our church, treat singleness like it's a bad thing, like it's a curse. Our ministries are built like, oh, we, need, we need to get them married. We need to get them dating. We need, and listen, Paul's saying it's a gift. For some people, it's a gift. Now, make clear, he says, as a concession, not as a command. In other words, he's not commanding you if you're single, you must remain single. If you've been widowed, you must not remarry. He's not saying that as a command, this is what you have to do. But he's saying, listen, some of us are called to this life because God is going to use us in a situation to focus more on his kingdom work and his purpose. And I'm not going to take too much because next week Paul talks more in depth about this. But, but I want you to understand what's going on. He's saying to the singles and widows, Paul's saying, don't miss the opportunity in front of you. If you are in this lot of life, listen, understand, like, God, God may use this opportunity to grow you closer to him, to, to allow you to do more work in his kingdom work. I was so eager to get married, and after I got married, I found out there were so many more responsibilities that came with marriage. I was so eager to have kids, and there's so many, and I think back, like, man, how, how much time did I waste that I could have given to the Lord in that time to do stuff for his kingdom work, and now I have so many other priorities that are pulling me apart. To, to the church, he's saying this, listen, as a church, we need to come celebrate those who are single. Quit treating them like there's something wrong. Treat, treat them like there's a mole in their face and they need to get it removed. We, we need to start looking at them and say, listen, uh, understand, some people are God. This is a gift from God. We need to celebrate that, encourage them to this, and, and, and say, how can we help you in this walk of life? He talks about that. Not everyone is meant to get married. The second group of people, verse 10 through 11, he talks about to the married people. He says this, and I think he's saying his principle is getting as this. It is married people need to stay married. People have written him, obviously, and he's addressing a concern of like, well, what about us? We're not getting along. Is it okay for us to get divorced? He's speaking to married couples who both are believers. Both are believers. And they're saying, well, what, what should we do? Because we shouldn't have disunity, and maybe we're not setting an example. And so they ask him a question, and he says, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He's, he's, he's more or less quoting Jesus because it's the same question they would ask Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And I'll turn there real quick and read to you. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to try to stump Jesus. And it says this, 
is that some of the Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? They're trying to trap him, like, can we do this? Is it okay? And Jesus responds in verse 4, says, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Like these two are united, you're literally going to rip them apart. This is not good. This is not okay. In verse 7, they said, well, why then, they asked, did Moses command us to give divorce papers to send her away? And he told them, he said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, you could go on a deep dive on why he talks about this and why sexual infidelity right here is, is, a, is a grounds where he says it's okay. If you think through the image and picture of, listen, our, our marriages are meant to point us to Christ and show relationship with Christ, what happens when you introduce, introduce more partners in that marriage? What does it say about God? It's okay if you worship other gods. It's okay if you allow other stuff. Like, listen, it's not okay in this. But Paul's saying this, like, it's not I, but the Lord has said this. Now, ultimately, Paul's telling us here, and he's echoing what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying, if you're both believers, listen, you need to work it out. You need to work it out. In other words, you have everything in you to make it work. You, you are saved by the grace of God. You have Jesus Christ in you. You have the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Everything in you is capable of making this work. You need to work it out for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your family, for the sake of the gospel. You need to make it work. And In other words, it's not necessarily an I can't, but I won't. No, I know, listen, and I've, I've, I feel it in my own life. There's rebuttal in this room, but you don't know my situation. You don't know what's going on. I would agree, and I don't want to belittle that. I don't want to come and say, well, it don't matter. This is what Scripture says. I don't want to take that away. But, but understand this. Listen, you're right, but would you admit there's thing that God knows that you don't? You don't know what God's going to do on the other side. I have to confess to you. When I was in about year four or five of marriage, Emily and I were, just, were struggling. We were young. We were immature. I had no idea how to do this marriage thing. I didn't think it was going to be hard. <laughs> Anybody attest to that? We dated for five years, never fought. We're best friends. And I said, this, this is going to be marriage. Restaurant, like, how, how could this be so hard? We get along so great. And then we got married, and suddenly it's like, What happened? <laughs> We started having trouble. And I remember being an athlete, and we had so many other issues going on in our life, and year and four or five, and I remember us getting in a big fight, and she goes to the room, and she's trying to decompress, and I go to the living room, and I'm just, I'm done. I'm just worn out. And I remember creeping in my mind something I never thought would creep. I said I would never entertain the thought of. And I remember sitting there going, I want a divorce. I don't want in this marriage anymore. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought I was getting. This is, this is not what I saved myself. This is not what I worked so hard. Like, God, this is, something's wrong. And you know what? The only thing that kept me from falling through, and I'm ashamed to say this out loud, but I'm being honest and vulnerable with you guys today is this, is the realization that I was a student minister that time, and no church would let me continue to be a student minister if I had been divorced. And that was the one thing God used in my life to hold on to that marriage. And I look back in embarrassment and insecurity. I mean, I can't believe that happened, but God used that to keep us together. 
And little did I know what God would be doing in the next several years. And through dealing with own sin in my life that my wife had no idea about that was affecting our marriage and stuff in her life that I had no idea. God, God began to work his gospel work in my marriage to, to where I'm saying, man, I, I get it now. It's good. And, and God's gospel work, his work is good. If I had given up then, I'd never seen what God had on the other side of it. Now, now some of you, I get, laugh at that because it's like, you know what, you're, you're talking year five, try year 15, bro. I've been struggling this for a long time. I, I, I'm, again, not trying to belittle where you're at. But, but if we believe in the same God who rose Jesus Christ from the dead, if we believe in the same God who did all he said he did, what, why, why is my marriage too small for him to fix? Now, now let me just make some clarification real quick on something. There, there's some of you in this room that might be dealing with abuse right now. And you're thinking, man, Eric's telling me I have to stay in this right now? Is that what you're saying? Listen, understand this. Your safety is the number one concern. And if you're in an abusive relationship right now, you, you need to get safe. And if you need help with that, listen, you come talk to myself, you come talk to Bradley, one of the elders, talk to Pete. Listen, we want to get you to safety. I'm not even talking about divorce, I'm talking about your safety. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But for many of us who are just struggling to work things out, we need to take those thoughts out of our mind. Which brings us to the third thing I think Paul is saying. He says in verse 12 through 16, I think he's saying this, trust that God can save our marriage. Not only do, par- par- do married people need to stay together, we need to trust that God can save our marriage. Look what he says. He says, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if a brother has an unbelieving wife, she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Well, what is he saying? This is not authoritative. Like, God didn't say this, but I, I said it, so is it not authoritative? No, he's addressing a situation that was specific to Corinth that I think is still somewhat applicable to us. He's talking about people who had got saved, but yet their spouse didn't get saved. I understand when Jesus Christ was here, this was not a thing. Christianity was not really officially going on, and not, the gospel had not fully taken full effect. And so Jesus never speaks to this, so Paul speaks with the authority of God on the situation. And he's talking about people who, listen, you, you got saved, but your spouse did not. Like, make, make no mistake, like, if you are, uh, sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, what he's talking about here is he's talking about Christian is a new faith. And so it's not unlikely for someone to get saved and have a spouse that's not. In other words, they didn't have the option to grow up with their childhood dream who they're going to marry someday, find someone who's a Christian. God. This is a new faith. This is a new thing. Marrying someone that's interfaith was not something they were able to do. Some people try to use this text to support missionary dating. Can I say that's not a thing? You don't know what missionary dating is? It's saying this, well, I know they're lost, but I think if I start dating them, I can get them saved. Scripture speaks very clearly that that is not okay. It's not welcome. We're called to marry other believers. Why? Because we're supposed to model the gospel through our marriage. But he says, if you find yourself in a situation... You find yourself in a situation like them right here. Listen, what you need to do, don't, don't just automatically run out. You need to come to believe that God can both save in our marriage. He, he talks about lost children and lost spouses. What does he say? He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Does that mean they're automatically saved because you stay in the relationship? 
No, he's saying this. He's saying they have a better chance at hearing the gospel message if you stay in. If you leave, where's the gospel going to come? God, God has a foothold in your house because of you. Don't leave. Believe that our God is big enough that he can reach your children. He can reach your unbelieving spouse. He can reach them and save them. Don't leave. Don't leave. Don't quit. They stand a better chance with you than out. No, not just that. I think he's talking about our marriage selves. Like, listen, understand that God not only can save our spouse, God can save our marriage. You have the creator of the heavens and the earth who has ordained and blessed your marriage. No one is going to fight harder to save your marriage than he is. Have you given him a chance? Have you given him a shot? Or have we call it quits? We, do we trust God? Too often you see couples who finally come and seek help, but it's after the, the car's already crashed into the wall, pieces are everywhere, like, how do we fix it? <laughs> it's like, man, I sure wish we'd have caught you back here. We could have swerved around the wall. But even a broken down car in a million pieces, God can still put back together if you just believe and allow him to do it. God can restore and redeem all things. People hear this and say, well, so when is divorce okay? Because I thought, I heard Jesus talk about this. Even Paul talks about it's okay if your spouse leaves. So when is divorce okay? Let me just say this so you hear me loud and clear. Divorce is never okay. Allowed and okay are not the same. Scripture gives some clarification of when God allows divorce and it's for the people who have been on the, the poor inside showing mercy to those people. But make no mistake, Malachi chapter 2.16, God says clear, I hate divorce, says the Lord. I hate it. When is divorce allowed? I love what uh, one quote from a website called Got Questions. Great resource says this. It says, the Bible gives two clear grounds for divorce. One is sexual immorality, which you just heard me read from Jesus, where he talks about in Matthew 5.32 and 19.9. And the second is what we just read in here where it talks about abandonment of an unbeliever. If you try to work on your marriage, an unbelieving spouse refuses to work, and you're doing all you can, but they want to leave, listen, let them go is what he says in there. But even in those two circumstances, those instances through divorce, divorce is not required or even encouraged. The most that can be said is that sexual immorality and abandonment are grounds grounds or an allowance for divorce. However, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration are always the first steps. Those are always the first thing we try. Divorce should only be viewed as a last resort. Are there, are there any grounds for divorce beyond the Bible explicit the Bible? What the beyond what the Bible explicitly says? Like what about if I have an abusive relationship? What if I have someone that's mishandling finances? I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't speak to it. But we can't presume the word of God. It's a dangerous territory when we start just making our own decisions on stuff that's going on there. The reality is many of us need to be fighting for our marriage and be working on it. You want to have those discussions about things, that's fine. But understand this, most divorces are not for those reasons. Put that chart up here. Here's statistics on what most divorces are caused by. Infidelity affair only make up 28%. 43% is irreconcilable differences. In other words, we just, we just can't get along. You talk about domestic abuse, that makes up 5.8% of divorces. You want to have a conversation in those areas, let's have a conversation in those areas. But for a majority of people, it's not those reasons. The reality is we just come to a point that we've sat by the fire and said, well, the fire's done. 
I'm ready to pack up my chair and move on. We've become so exhausted from pulling liar fluid and can't understand why these big flames don't last because that's not how a marriage is built. That's not how it's done. And we don't ever seek help saying, how do we build a marriage that lasts? You see, here's the truth. Like in a world that's giving up on marriage, believers have to show them marriages that endure. I, I don't know where some of you are at right now. And I hope what I've said came with grace and understanding and understanding your situation. If you've been divorced, listen, understand this. God, God has done amazing things through my family and my situation. I'm grateful for what he's done. But we have to, wherever we're at, if that's us, we have to look back and say, I understand that that's not okay. And moving forward, I'm going to allow the grace of the gospel to work in my marriage moving forward. I don't want to be another statistic that now says, you know what, I know 50% of the last one, my chances go higher. I'm going to make a decision right now in the marriage I'm in right now, we are going to make this work. No exceptions, no buts. If you're in this room right now and you're on the fritz and your marriage is struggling, listen, you need to ask for help. This is what God has placed the church in place for. I'm not a professional counselor. I will help you find the people to help you. You find community that will encourage, allow people to speak into your marriage, but listen, don't just begin to say, well, maybe there's an out clause in it. Because I know how dire things can get, and you can get to points in your life and say, you know what? Maybe leaving sounds better than staying. And God wants us to stay and work it out for the sake of his name, for the sake of his gospel, the sake of his work. And so wherever you're at, I'm praying that we can be a church that starts holding a standard saying, listen, we want to pursue this. We want to encourage. We want to help with this. And if I've struggled in the past, I am trust that God can redeem that. I'm going to ask if you bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to ask elders and their spouses to be made available because you may need some help and encouragement and prayer today. So with your head bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to ask this. I'm going to pray for those who are single today. If you're feeling pressure or, or widowed and you're, you're feeling lost, I, I, just, I just pray the Lord will encourage you right now. I pray we as in church would encourage you and help you. I pray those who are struggling in their marriage right now, who had a fight on the way to church, put on the smiley faces because that's what we're supposed to do on Sunday mornings. I pray that you would help us just find you in this moment. I pray the church can be a resource, a place of encouragement to help us through our struggles. And God, I pray we would make the commitment to endure, not quit. Believe that you are working in and through our marriage. And that our marriage would point people to you. For those who are happily married, God, I pray even in that, that we would make sure that our marriage is pointing people to you. God, I pray for those in the sound of my voice right now who I stepped on their toes today because they have been divorced. God, I pray they know I love them, and that was not my intent. It's not to beat them down, to make them worn out. But God, help them wherever walk of life they're in right now to get behind this idea of, listen, we, we want to fight for marriages that will endure. God, help us all to understand that the only way we can make our marriages work is through the gospel work in our life. And if we're not a child of God, we haven't given our, our soul to you, our life to you, it's going to be a constant uphill battle.
God, thank you for saving my marriage. I was so ready to call it quits. I'm so embarrassed to even share that story. I feel like as a pastor, I should never say that. But God, in my weakest moments, I know it's creeping in my mind and my heart. And I thank you for removing those thoughts from me, and I pray that those thoughts never come back. And I pray if Emily and I ever get to a place if we're struggling, God, I pray that we would be vulnerable enough to share with elders and other leaders, hey, we need help. Because our marriage isn't perfect either. But God, we want to glorify you through marriage. So help us do that. God, I love you because your gospel is good. I love you because you work in and through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask if you stand. We're going to have a time of response. And, and maybe today you just need prayer. Please, please don't feel worried about coming up, about what people think. That's not what this is about. Bradley and Fair over here, they, they would love to talk to you and encourage you. We have uh, Steve Riley back there in the back. We have Corey Amber Whalen. I'll be over here. I would love nothing more than to pray and encourage you whatever way we can. If you need help, come ask for assistance. We will help you, but we, we want to work with you. So I'm just asking this moment if you would respond and worship.